Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Joe, thank you for having me. That was that was nice. I'm trying. That I try very to nice. a little differently every time. Just a- every time. I th- there are people out there that are just that's all they care about is how will Michael respond. Oh yeah, there's whole blogs that are like they track. <laughs> They track my thank you for having these, and they they analyze them. They break them down. Which word did he accent this time? Stuff like that. Exactly. Was he quiet? Was he loud? What was what was he going on did there? He sincere? Did he seem insincere? It's I mean, you can, there's there's you know there's mountains of material you can read analyzing. Thank you for it's, having. Me. It's crazy. All right, we're getting we're going to do our draft this week. Before we do our draft, I want to uh, take a moment uh, and thank our sponsor, the uh, Dollar Shave Club. Uh, think you know the deal at this point go to the dollarshaveclub.com slash podcast you get a free month they send you a box of shaving things you know your razor your handle the whole deal you're laughing i'm trying to do this straight i'm just i'm laughing at the idea that the dollar shave club's official slogan is i think you know the deal by now i think you know the deal that's actually what they go with i think you know the deal just do it you've already done it just do it um i don't know just go to dollarshapeclub.com slash podcast uh and and you will get a razor in the mail uh with your with your handle very cool deal and it costs like i don't know well the first month's free after that you're on your own. I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm giving you the first month free by is going it? to dollarshapeclub.com. This is the best one ever, isn't it? Because you're not even helping. This is the least professional sales pitch I have ever. You know no information about this. You don't have. You don't know how much it costs. How you do what happens. You don't. I mean, the, I would be furious with you if I were dollar. I would be like, what oh yeah. I mean, yeah. How, how is this guy standing up for our company? Last time we did this, if I'm not mistaken, you talked about how you would like the Dollar Shave Club to come to your house, chloroform you, That's right. and shave you. That's and right. you're calling my pitch unprofessional? I'm me? not saying I'm any better. I'm <laughs> saying that I'm not the one in charge of the actual information that they're paying to have you read. Neither and am I. I Neither am I. I haven't gotten a dollar. I haven't gotten a dollar for this. Right, they, that's made- true. They just—they're sponsoring the podcast. They're not—they're not throwing cash in, into your pocket or anything. Now, if they were, I still wouldn't do it any differently. <laughs> I don't. No, I mean they look—they do a great job. I—they really do. That's—that's. That's, I think it's a super cool concept. Okay, but they're just—they're sending you razors. That's the deal, right? I mean, that's, I don't think there's like anything deeper going on here. I know that is their official <laughs> corporate motto. I think you know the deal by now. <laughs> They do fun commercials, by the way. Have you ever you've seen some of those Dollar Shave Club commercials? I'm not sure I have. Describe them for uh, me. Like they do a whole bunch. They're all quirky and weird. Like I know one was like a guy trying to to buy a razor, like a shaving, you know, the refill uh, at the store, and of course it was behind lock and key because they cost like twelve billion dollars. They really do. And he was trying to do it, and and the guy was like asking him like what are you doing there buddy and he's like well i'm just trying to get razors and he's like hey settle down settle down pal and right it's and like, he's a, like, it's oh, like a bank robbery basically like, right right and then he and then he ta- he like tasers the guy because right. he's trying to get razors so uh, that's funny and it's and 100 percent true the dollar shave club like you know how we've we have discussed how much neither one of us like shaving so if you don't like shaving you sure as heck don't like spending enormous sums of money 
on razors doesn't seem right. I don't know what they're made of, but doesn't seem right. So they saw that and they came in with a perfectly legitimate and 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 cool solution where they will for a very reasonable price send you a box of razor and and handle. It's a great concept, it's a great idea. They don't deserve to have us promoting it. They 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 deserve a lot better than us. I I fully agree with you. However, <laughs> this is 100% on them. I mean, we didn't go looking for this. Right? Like it is true. It is true. Absolutely their fault that we're the ones who have to talk about this product. Do you think the person who heard this podcast and went to them and said, Hey, we ought to sponsor that, do you think that guy still has a job? It's a great question. (laughs) I don't I don't know. Uh, Well the the next question would be, does anyone from is there any quality control over there at the (laughs) Shit Club? In other words, are they listening to these? And like taking copious notes and going like, yes, I like the way that our product was represented <laughs> on the podcast. Like that can't be true, right? Because well, we wouldn't still be doing this, right? right. I mean, <laughs> they would have yanked it so long ago. So basically, they were like, "Look, it sounds like it's a sports thing or something. Just I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. I'm sure those they I'm look- sure those guys will do a great job promoting <laughs> our product." <laughs> They're like, "Well, Joe Joe Posnanski is a professional sports writer." <laughs> He's not gonna. He's not gonna royally screw us over by dragging our uh, product through this weird <laughs> maze of language that is impossible to decipher. And I'm sure he'll do a very professional job and read exactly the words that we have requested that he read in a very professional and succinct manner. And that he won't spend six minutes with his idiot friend <laughs> talking about <laughs> doing a meta analysis of the way in which we are promoting the product instead of just promoting the product. I'm sure that's what I thought. But the question is, have they ever actually checked in? And I, I would say- No, no, no chance. No yeah. chance. And not only that, uh, there's no question at some point it'll get back to them. Yeah. And then somebody will get fired. Somewhere, I, I just feel in, like- that. Somewhere in like wherever they are, Cincinnati- there's gonna there's gonna be a guy who's gonna go to his computer and sit down and go. Let me just check in on the, all of the different people <laughs> who, are, who are representing our product. And then you're gonna hear one you're gonna hear one word very loudly ringing out throughout their corporate headquarters, which is "Hey." That's what you're. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, what there's, you're saying is, it's gonna be like uh, in the Hudsucker proxy with the, just a guy running down a hallway, like <laughs> waving a sheet of paper. Just going like, however we can, we have to stop this from happening again. Do you you think that like a company like Chevrolet or somebody is like listening to this and going, those guys would be perfect for us? That's that's another great question. Is there a company that is that is sort of like is looking at the way that you and I approach this? As a positive thing, I can't. It's a positive. I mean, thing. It's not Chevrolet. Like maybe it's no, like, no. You know, I don't know. It's like Acme whoopee cushions or something. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like some some kind of like. Do you think they still make whoopee cushions? They I don't know. still make whoopee cushions. I, I know for a fact they do. I have an eight-year-old son. They're all over my house. <laughs> All right, we're going to do the draft now because that was just a disaster. Um, I will say this though, in our defense. <laughs> We actually end up – they're probably hoping that it's 30 seconds, right? They're probably hoping for like That's 30 of discussion about their product. We're now seven and a half minutes into this, and all <laughs> we've done is mention their product over and over again. Now, maybe it's not the way that they want it to be mentioned, but they're getting their money's worth in terms of like the amount of time 
that we spend discussing the Dollar Shave Club, don't you think? But but isn't but isn't that the same argument that people have for like baseball games being longer, where they're like, hey, you're getting more baseball. It's like. I'm not getting any more baseball. I'm just – it's just stretching well, out a lot longer. I don't think that's the right analogy. I think the, a better analogy might be a politician who thinks like all press is good press, right? It's like <laughs> it's it's unless – we won't name names because we're not going to get into politics on this no. podcast. No. But th- there are certainly – we can all probably think of one off the top of our heads – politicians who just believe as long as your name is being mentioned, that's a good thing because of awa- just awareness. You just want awareness. So in that vein, if the Dollar Shave Club happens to take the same approach as a theoretical politician who just believes like the number of times the product is mentioned, every time the product is mentioned, that's a good thing, then we are are absolutely outperforming what the Dollar Shave Club hoped we would deliver for them. That is true. I doubt that's what they want. Uh, Here's one thing I know for sure. Right now, our producer, uh, Tess, uh, who's still delightful – uh, by the way, uh, is pulling her hair out yeah, because she, she's like, would you guys get to the draft already right now? She's of course she has the power to cut all this, which she, she might do. Mm. Um, but right now she is absolutely screaming at a computer. Here's the thing though. She theoretically, of course she has the power to cut all this. However, you are contractually obligated to read certain <laughs> things about the Tom Shape Club. So she can't cut all of it. She could cut most of it, but she can't cut all of it. And I would say a better thing to do would be to go back, would be for Tess to go back to the beginning of this, record maybe with you or maybe herself a separate piece of, of dialogue where she says, listen, here's what happens. They're going to do their draft. But before they get to the draft, they're going – to giggle like idiots about the Dollar Shave Club for 10 full minutes. We are right now, as I'm saying this, passing the 10-minute mark of this podcast. We have not gotten to the thing we were supposed to do. So maybe she'll go back and just say, look, it's 10 minutes, guys. It's 10 (laughs) minutes of Dollar Shave Club and like meta Dollar Shave Club nonsense. If you want to hear the draft, listen to the first part where they just mention what the Dollar Shave Club is to fulfill our contractual obligations. Then skip forward to the ten thirty mark, and you will hear the thing that you ostensibly came here to hear. I like that idea the the fast forward option. Yeah. I like the I like the concept. All right, let's do a draft. All right, so uh, we are drafting this week, and and we always we always do our draft where we do not really discuss it beforehand. Uh, Tess, God bless her, earlier in the week she said, "What is your guys' draft going to be about?" And I'm like. I will we'll probably decide like four minutes before it starts. So we did do that. Started four minutes before. So we are drafting World Series moments, obviously, for the what's going on in, in baseball right now. But that's it. We didn't say whether they're best World Series moments or worst or or favorite or anything. We we're just drafting World Series moments. The only caveat is they are World Series moments in our lifetime. So Essentially, the last, you know, I'm a little older than you, but essentially, and I don't even think that we'll count like when we were kids and didn't even even realize what was going on. So it's best World Series moments in our lifetime. You have the first pick. I know. And there was a trade made last time, which was a conditional. I got your a conditional fourth round pick in a future draft, but that won't be this draft. Correct. That'll be the next draft. I believe that's the next one because uh, we to get into the complications flip. of these things, we yeah. flip exactly. And since I have you have the first pick, you don't right. want to flip with me this week. So right, so we'll flip fourth round picks next week. All right, my number one is extremely easy, the easiest draft choice I've ever made in any of these drafts. 
It's Edgar Renteria grounds to Keith Folk, who underhands it to Doug Mankiewicz. 2004, the Red Sox win their first World Series title in uh, in 86 years. Um, there's no there's no second choice. If I as long as I have this, I don't care what happens in the rest <laughs> of the draft. It, it, now, it, first of all, b- before we get started with this. Are you a Red Sox fan? Is that yeah, is that why you, you like this so much? Again, I don't know if I I forget whether I have ever mentioned this uh, to you or anyone before. But yes, I'm a Red Sox fan. So that moment. Oh, okay. Now let me and just quickly to to give you. I may have talked about this before, but to give you some indication of how deeply uh, ingrained failure was in the minds of Red Sox fans. So the Red Sox, you know, they they uh, came back from down 0-3 to beat the Yankees in the ALCS. They go to the World Series. In that World Series, it was utter domination. It was yes. – the Red Sox never trailed for a single inning in that entire World Series. They swept the Cardinals in four games. The Cardinals that year, by the way, were an absolute juggernaut. They had won 104 yeah. or five, five games. games. Yeah. They, had, they had pool holes in his prime. They had Jim Edmonds in his prime. They had great pitching, although some of their some of their pitchers were injured. Uh, but they, their lineup was absurd, and the Red Sox just just utterly snuffed them out. It was complete domination. Yes. They go into the ninth inning of the of Game Four in St. Louis. Uh, they're winning three to nothing. Um, they the leadoff hitter, I believe, is Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols singles. In that moment, I had the following thought process leap into my brain. In a tenth of a second, here's what it, here's what happened. It was like they're going to lose this game. The Cardinals are going to come back and score four runs in this inning off Keith Falk, who's gassed, and they're going to lose this game. And the Cardinals are going to go crazy, and it's going to be bedlam. And everybody will say it doesn't matter. They're still up three one. And then tomorrow in game five, they're going to lose that game too. And it's going to be suddenly it's going to be three to two. And everyone's going to say it's okay. We're going back to Fenway. It's okay. Don't worry. And then they're going to go back to Fenway, and they're going to lose Game Six in some weird, heartbreaking way that it, that utterly demoralizes the team. And suddenly it's Game Seven, and the team that went down 0-3 to the Yankees, and then came back to win a seven-game series for the first time in the history of baseball, is now going to do the reverse. They're going to be up 3-0 to, in the World Series. Then they're going to lose four straight. And they're going to lose the World Series again to the Cardinals, which makes total sense based on 1967 and 1946. And that is the only – because that would be a new way for the Red Sox to achieve some kind of horrifying failure in the postseason. And that's what's going to – that is what is going to happen. That is the – this story has already been written. It is set in stone. That is what is going to happen now, starting now after this leadoff single. And by the time I stopped having that freakout – Keith Folk had retired the next three guys and underhanded to Doug Mankiewicz and the, and the World Series was over. But in that moment, in the top of the ninth inning, that is absolutely what I thought was going to have happen. I was so sure of it, I started sweating and my heart was pounding and I couldn't breathe because I knew in my heart that was what was going to happen. So when Keith Folk underhanded that comebacker to Doug Mankiewicz and he just caught it and then started jumping up and down, I have never experienced joy outside of my family, let's say, sure. outside of my marriage and children. I've never experienced any joy like that in my life. And I and also weirdly, sadly, I never will again. Never like, will. No. It's such a special once in a lifetime moment. It's what the Cubs are chasing this year. Although I would argue it's slightly different with the Cubs, but because they haven't had the the like seventh game failures that the Red Sox had had. But I it, it was the ultimate sports happiness. And, and and I really honestly don't care what else I draft in this draft as long as I have that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I'm glad you had the first pick. Of course, if you had not had the first pick, you still would have gotten it um, because that 
that doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, if, you know, it's, well, I was there. I was there. It was cool. I mean, there's no look. That whole postseason was really, really cool. And and I was there in St. Louis when it happened. And you know, obviously, I'm looking at it from a writer's perspective because I'm you know, and it's it's so weird to be at a World Series, especially one that had that sort of emotion and and you know the the stakes that you know that were were uh, in play and all of that. Uh, it's very weird to, to watch a team win the World Series on the road like that. I mean, because obviously, you know, that happened and the Red Sox are going crazy. And there were, you know, four or five, six thousand Red Sox fans there who were going crazy. Yeah. Um, but generally it was sort of like, no, God, we got to let's go home to school tomorrow. You know, what I mean, it was like everybody just sort of piling out like, well, that, hey, it was a nice year. So you had all of this sort of depressed you know energy while on the field you see guys jumping up and down and going crazy i mean so i remember that scene very vividly and think about how different that scene would have been had it been at fenway uh, i mean I it mean, just would have been it would have i mean it would have crumbled into dust i can't imagine yeah, exactly exactly and that was that was my vivid thought of that play i mean obviously it was really that was such a that that yankees red sox series is for a non fan of either team is legendary. I mean, it's just such, I mean, it, it's sort of what baseball is in a nutshell. I mean, it just, yeah. it's so the, the momentum and, you know, does it exist? Doesn't it exist? Uh, the stolen base to, to take one game. I mean, it was so cool. And then it was kind of a letdown in, in a way, especially because the first two games were so, I mean, it was mayhem in Boston for yeah. those first two games. Just absolute man. Did you get to go to either no, of those games? Not. I had just moved to Los Angeles in June of that year. And I thought I lit this is again how crazy it was. I had thought about going uh, or trying to go, but I mean first of all I was working. It was season one of the office and oh wow the, and the uh, the producer of the show saw how sad I was that I had to work during those games and found a TV and wheeled it in onto the set <laughs> so that I could watch the games. It was like everyone was on, was like getting behind me uh, in my quest to uh, overcome my grief and, and sadness. Um, but no, I didn't get to go. And, and also again, to let you know how, how crazy it was to be a Red Sox fan. I had this thought, this legitimate thought in my head that I had been in Los Angeles for all of those uh, Yankee games and that I was I was legitimately scared to leave Los Angeles. I thought that maybe <laughs> somehow me being away from Boston, this is the weird like narcissism of superstition, right? It's like you, I was like, I can't leave Los Angeles. It's working. Where I am, it's working. So if I leave and they lose, I will never forgive myself. It was it was uh, it was so cool. I, those first two games in Boston, uh, the energy was was something. It, it was it was out of this world energy, and and you know especially uh, I would say game two. It was really after winning game one, and uh, the the energy in game two was like this could really happen. And uh, and then you go to 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 St. Louis, and and you know St. Louis obviously has pretty famously passionate baseball fans, uh, and they never got a moment. During those last yeah, two games, there really was never, never no, there was never a moment where they could even stand up and cheer. So, uh, quite a, it's it, it's the obvious pick for you at number one. Uh, with my first pick, I'm going to take the obvious pick, sort of for somebody who has not watched his team win a World Series. 
Uh, and that is the Kirk Gibson home run in, in 88 against Oakland. Uh, and, and the reason, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, you know, all the things that, that you and I in our last podcast talked about Kyle Schwarber, uh, Gibson hitting that home run is not, it's not the same thing, you know, at all. Uh, but it's, it was one of the, it was the same feeling of like, I, I, this is, this is not really happening. This is not, this is the stuff that happens in, in movies in terrible movies where the guy can't think of a, of a good way to get out of it. Um, this is the sort of thing that happens in those kind of movies. This doesn't happen in real life. And I was uh, a young reporter uh, for the Charlotte Observer at the time, and I was driving back from a Clemson football game uh, <laughs> when when that thing happened. I think it was Clemson. It might have been Furman. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, but I was from a, a college football game in, in, in South Carolina because I was literally driving – uh, past there in in Gaffney, South Carolina, there's this giant water tower that is shaped like a peach. It's been in like a, a bunch of movies, uh, but it's just like this huge water tower shaped like a peach and painted like a peach and all of that. And I was literally driving back by that thing when uh, Jack Buck uh, he hits a home run and Jack Buck has his famous call: "The I do not believe what I just saw." And I literally pulled the car over. It was so so cool. And so I didn't even see it. I mean, it was like on, on radio, but it was such a, you know, it was insane. It was just a magical, insane, you know, fall in love with baseball moment. And I don't like Kirk Gibson and I don't like the Dodgers. Uh, and I don't like the A's. I didn't like anything about that series beyond the fact of that, that Kirk Gibson moment was just, it was incredible. Just it incredible. also has, uh, two, amazing home run calls associated. Yes, the two the, the only one that has two as good as that. I mean, the Hank yeah. Aaron call also has a a very classic uh Vince Scully call that that people don't hear. Um right. but I it's in fact, I think it's a great argument whether the Jack Buck sort of in your face, I don't believe what I just saw call or the Vince Scully beautiful she is gone and then and then silence and then in the year of the impo- improbable, the impossible has happened. I mean, they're, oh, both, I, they're both. I get imp- chills. Yeah, they, they're both incredible calls. And the every detail about that moment is incredible. The, th- the fact that it was 3-2, the fact that Gibson steps out of the box before the pitch because he suddenly remembered the scouting report that Eckersley tries to throw a – uh, that his uh, change up right on on three. Yes, he always goes to the change up. <laughs> the fact that he could barely walk. The fact that it, I mean, it, everything about it is just insane. It really is like it's the closest thing you have in real life to the moment at the end of the natural. When, yes, when he yes. Run. he's injured. He, it's the the highest stakes moment. Like all that stuff. It. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's probably the most famous. It, the only thing that could have made it better is if it had been Game Seven. And other than that, everything about it is absurd. And well, I mean, uh, the A's never recovered. And I'm I'm not again. I'm not a momentum guy. But there was something about the A's were better than that. Way better than that Dodgers oh, yeah. team. I mean, the Dodgers had Hershiser, and that was a big deal. But they're way better than that Dodgers team. And it didn't matter. I mean, they're just they it. It would be stunning if the Dodgers had lost that series. I mean, yeah. it still would be a stunning moment. But the fact that the it was sort of a punch to the face and Oakland never really recovered from it uh, sort of makes it even a little bit better. Um, I, for pick number two, I think I'm going to go with a pitching performance. 
And there are nice. many, many great ones. But I think for history's sake, I'm going to go with Tom Glavin, 1995, Game 6. Uh, uh, why would you do that to me? Why? Why would you do that to me? <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, if not for that performance, he threw eight innings of one-hit ball. Uh, against a absurd lineup, it was the beginning sure. of that Indians run of just uh, uh, their their lineup was ridiculous. He utterly shut them down for eight innings through a one hitter. If not for that game, the Braves never win a World Series. They they in that entire run of whatever however many NL East titles in a row that they won, they would that was the only they it took that performance to get them a single World Series title. And against that lineup in that situation, when they had already had a a number of years in a row where they were the best team in baseball, or one of the best teams, and and should have won already, and then the number of years after that where they made the playoffs and never won. I mean, it's stretching way into the next millennium. They were in the playoffs every year with a great team, and they never won the series. And that, that pitching performance, I remember watching that, and, you know, uh, you know, now if if pitch FX had existed back then and we had been able to see how many inches off the plate consistently Maddox and Glavin got uh, with their change-ups and with their, you know, two-seam fastballs and everything else, I, I don't know what happens to that team. But that pitching performance, which was so dominant against such a good lineup to clinch the Braves' only World Series in that entire run, is pretty magical. Yeah, see, it's not. It's not at all. It's not magical. It's it's horrendous. Um, I I no, you, I see why you pick it. I, when when I think back to that game, obviously, I am a Cleveland fan, and and I was covering that game. It was one of the one of the first World Series games. Um, that I was, I was working for the Cincinnati Post at the time, and it was one of the first World Series that I had gone to. Uh, and obviously, had my you know my heart was in my stomach the whole time. Um. What I remember about that game is Tom Clavin did not throw a strike the entire game. <laughs> not, not one strike. It is, it is humanly impossible to hold that Cleveland Indians team to one hit. It's just not possible. It's not possible. That team with Lofton and, and, and Joey Bell, uh, as I still love to call Albert, uh, Joey Bell, um, and a young Tommy and, and Bayerga, and it's, it's not possible to one hit that team unless you are constantly throwing the ball eight inches off the plate and the umpire is giving you strikes on every single time you do it. And, you know, look, I, I, I believe, you know, Tom Glavin is a Hall of Famer. Greg Maddox is a Hall of Famer. I believe they would have figured out how to get that way no matter what the situation. I just think they're super-duper smart players who would have figured it out. You can't give them that much off the plate. You just can't. And 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 they just didn't know – you couldn't beat them. You could not beat that team, um, you know, until until they stopped calling every one of those pitches a strike, which they did against the Yankees. And and suddenly, you know, the next year. So um, – All right, more, it is more, more, egregious, more egregious umpiring. That game or, or the umpiring for the Braves pitchers in general or – Levon Hernandez, no, oh, no, Levon Hernandez. That's that's the more that's the one, right? That's the one. That's because he wasn't eight inches; he was like twenty three inches off the plate. Well, that last the last strikeout, the sixteenth strikeout, <laughs> was a curveball that started above who who was hitting who what hitter was it? It was a good hitter. What did he strike out like. in the last? I can't remember. He was like the tying rod at the plate, and it, I mean it was 
it was eight inches outside and about 14 inches high. <laughs> and it was called strike three. I mean, it, that I, rem, I even remember not, you know, not having any concept of really like the strike zone or whatever. Just watching that going, well, that wasn't a strike. Are you out of your mind? That was, that's the worst umpiring I think we've ever seen in that. Game. Yeah, no, and it, that is legendary. That is legendarily bad umpiring. Um, you know, now I mean, I'll I'll give full more. By the way, and Tom Glavin, by the way, is one of my heroes uh, because the very first baseball game I ever covered uh, was in Atlanta, and I had no idea what to do. I had no, I'd never, you know, I've been a baseball fan my whole life, but I'd never been in a clubhouse. I'd never covered a game. I wasn't sure even what I was allowed to do or where I was allowed to go. And I remember going into the clubhouse after the game, and Tom Glavin. I mean, I'm petrified, and and the other writers are not really helping me at all, and 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 I just don't even know what to do. And Tom Glavin says, you know, something like, "Hey, you okay? You look lost." And I said, "Yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know, it's my first game uh, covering it." And he goes, "Oh, well, come on over." And he pulled me over to his locker uh, and like gave me all the quotes I needed and just told. I mean, he was hey, he's absolutely my hero. Oh my gosh. I so so I love Tom Clavin. I absolutely he didn't throw a strike that game. I'm just those are two <laughs> they're two separate things. Tom Glavin, Hall of Famer, all time great, love him. He didn't throw a strike that game. So that's just they're they're just two separate thoughts. He's um, also, he's also he was kind of a hero of mine because he was from he's from Concord he's from Mass. That's right, a hockey player, right? He was yeah, he was a, he was a player. hockey star, yeah. And in, in in the age before the Red Sox had ever won a World Series, we we were reduced to taking pride in the accomplishments <laughs> of New Englanders on other teams. And so <laughs> I was like, I was like, hey, a guy from uh, Massachusetts won. Good for him. <laughs> All right, let me let me go here. My second pick is going to be. I, there there are a lot of great uh, events in my life uh, time. I'm going to pick and it's it's the cliche but but it is a moment I remember watching and that is the Carlton Fisk homer in game 6 of the 75 World Series. Um I was at the time 8 years old and uh it was late. It was it, it happened late. Um and I remember it was like one of those cool moments but but you know really outdated moments it's sort of something you would see like in a an old movie or something where i was just sitting really really still because i didn't i figured if maybe they would forget i was there my parents would forget i was there because it was like a school night uh i think and and um and i was you know and there'd been a bunch of rain leading into that game and and so I just remember just sitting there, just hoping that nobody would notice me and that I could watch the game to the end and and on our little television watching that home run. And I didn't, you know, I didn't care. I mean, if 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 anything, I was probably rooting for the Reds because at least they were an Ohio team. Um, but I, I didn't care who won. Uh, but I remember him hitting the home run and, and it being like pretty cool. But what I really remember is the replay, which is obviously now the most famous, right. one of the most famous replays ever, uh, where the you know the cameraman sort of because I think he saw like a rat, right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the story That's, is like he saw a rat. The story is is that the the you know Fenway was in such disrepair, and that the guy in left field inside the monster 
like was go- trying to turn to catch the flight of the ball, but couldn't because there was a giant rat like sitting next to him. <laughs> I don't think I buy that because from that angle, how would you do? How would you follow the flight of the ball? It doesn't. Mean- no, it's coming right at you. There's yeah, no way you'd be able to follow it. Yeah, I don't. I, I think that's apocryphal, but I would love to believe that it's true because it's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious, and the guy did say it. I mean, like he might he might be making it up, but I mean, it's not like something somebody like said like 10 years later i mean that right. guy himself has said that story uh and that angle i mean everything about that shot of him trying to wave the ball fair and dancing up the line that's that's the essence of it you know i mean it just it's beautiful uh that was obviously a great series i wrote about that series at great length uh in my book the machine available on amazon and um yeah, there you go. So yeah. that's my second pick. It's a great – it's obviously a wonderful moment. I remember reading about it as a kid and being so happy that there was like a happy story about the Red Sox and then reading <laughs> further and going, oh, but they lost game seven. It didn't matter. <laughs> they, did. they did. Oh, and it was a very famous homer in game seven that never got the same play and that was the homer that Tony Perez hit off of Bill Lee right. uh, where Bill Lee tried to throw that little blooper pitch and he just pounded it uh, over the monster. But uh, that one doesn't get the same play. Well, I will go with number three. It's a uh, for my third pick. I'm going to go with Luis Gonzalez, 2001. Yeah, of course you are. Uh, of course I am. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it, it's an incredibly improbable moment, like a, a deeply improbable. Um, the number of things that had to go right for the Diamondbacks to win that series after, by the way, Byung Kim had had like given up those two oh. insane home runs. Yes. The Yankees in, in New York, they were, they, they really should have just, they should have closed out that series in five games and it had to go seven. And that there was the, in that ninth inning facing Mariano, uh, after like a, a very gutsy pitching performance by Schilling where he basically made one mistake the entire game. Right. Um, the, the, it was a, it was a bunt, that would that Rivera made an error on, and then they bunted again, and they got the runner out at third, and then and and Brocious didn't throw to first to try to get the double play. He was a little bit cautious, and then Tony Womack of all people hits a double <laughs> off double. of Mariano Rivera. Like, are you are you kidding me? And then they br- suddenly, and there's still only I think one out, right? And they bring the infield in, and then it's just a little blooper. And I remember. Thinking like I couldn't believe it at that in 2001, that was the closest that Red Sox fans had to a Red Sox victory was a Yankee <laughs> World Series loss. And I remember they showed a shot of Derek Jeter and Paul O'Neill on the bench and they looked sad. And I had this thought of I've never seen those two men no. sad before. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've, it's a new I'm experiencing a new thing. I'm seeing what happens when Derek Jeter and Paul O'Neill are sad. And that the the entire inning it happened so quickly, and so like it was like the first or second pitch in my memory of every at bat was just like single bunt bunt out and then Womack, I think Womack Womack had two strikes on him I think it was like a two two pitch or something, and then Gonzalez like took a pitch and then hit the single and then it was over and it was like what what just happened it, un- <laughs> it, it the entire thing unraveled so fast and after for the Diamondbacks to win that game after having had leads. That, that where their closer, who had been pretty lights out all year, gave up two crazy home runs. Yes, in New York, it, it was it was like it was. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And that that shot, it's not quite Fisk, but the shot of Gonzalez 
running up the line and then leaping into the air with his hands in the air is is very iconic, I think. It's not quite as iconic as hitting the home run, but it was a Game 7 walk-off. It's like that's a very rare thing, obviously, in baseball and certainly in the World Series. Yeah, you know, everything about that series. So I, I covered that series, and everything about that series is – there's like it's there's like a dreamscape quality to that whole series, you know, yeah. and and uh, I'm actually going to pick with my third pick. I mean, and and you, I don't think it's it's unclear to any of our uh, regular podcast listeners how much you and I despise the Yankees. I don't yeah. think that I don't think that has been left out of any of them. No. Um, but but my third pick is actually the Derek Jeter homer to win Game Three of that series, and and here's why. So I'm at that game, and and the Yankees are down two nothing, uh, and I'm on a very very tight deadline, and the Yankees go behind, uh, you know they're behind in the ninth, they're down two in the ninth, yeah, and so the game's over, and I'm writing because I'm on deadline, the Yankees are dead, that's it, because they would be going down three three nothing, uh, they're not coming back from three nothing, no chance. Uh, the the series is over, and the Yankees had won three World Series in a row leading into that series. So it was like, hey, this is it. The Yankees have finally been vanquished. Uh, and then Kim gives up the home run, uh, which is just everybody in the entire press box. I remember just like, oh, like it was just it was it was like a it wasn't like even sad. It was like a like like a guttural kind of agony because they all were like looking they were doing exactly what i was doing which is they were looking at their stories and going this is useless this is every single word i have written is completely worthless now you know at this point and we're all on still on deadline and it didn't win the game like if it wins the game that's bad enough but it only tied the game so now we don't even know we're going in extra innings and going extra innings and and you know the the dimebacks don't score jeter you know, at this point is already a legend in the Yankee world or whatever. And he hits the home run. And now you got to figure out a way to write this because now everything is completely different. The Yankees, not only did they just win this game, but they won it in such a dramatic fashion. They're the Yankees. They will never die ever. And so you have a whole other feeling about this thing. And so I'm writing feverishly, just writing and writing and writing and writing. And it ends, and I, you know, I, I send. I don't even know what it is, and I look around, and nobody has left the, the the stadium. I mean, this is probably fifteen minutes after the game is over. Nobody's left the stadium. They're all singing "New York, New York" with Sinatra, over and over and over again, and they won't leave. And suddenly, this hits me. This is obviously six weeks after nine right. eleven, seven weeks after nine eleven. The city is still in shock. You know, the city is still in mourning. This is a moment for a city that I love, as the Yankees beside, a city that I love. And this is a moment. And I'm looking around, and I mean, that emotion of that home run and the reaction to it was just, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. And and uh, so, you know, that's... There's a lot going on there, but that whole series was wild. Of course, the next night it, it happens again. You know, Kim gives up the the two run homer again in the in the ninth inning. Yeah. Um, but but that Derek Jeter home run will always stay with me. Yeah, it, it it unfolded perfectly for me because 
I love New York more than anything. I loved living sure. there. I loved being there. I hated the Yankees. And so <laughs> Jeter and Brocious and Tino and all those guys gave New York this incredibly cathartic series of moments, really. Yes. Not just one or two, but three, four, five. And it was wonderful for the city. And the city felt very happy and alive. And then they still lost. (laughs) And I agree with that. I agree with that. And I I remember people saying to me, uh, you you have to be rooting for the Yankees this year. And I would go, yeah, no, I'm not. (laughs) No, I I can compartmentalize my love for the city and my eternal hatred for the baseball team that plays in the Bronx. So it really was like I was – a part of me was extremely happy and that and the Jeter thing also became it was after midnight, so we became Mr. Yes. November, which was Mr. November. Cool. Like I, I recognized how what a wonderful thing that was for that city in that moment, uh, and I'm still so happy about Luis Gonzalez. Uh, <laughs> Me too. Um, all right, so for my fourth pick, I will go with. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to go with um, David Freeze. David yeah. Freeze game the six. Whole inning. The whole inning. Well, the whole the, the whole the whole game. Yeah, yeah. David Freeze, Game Six, twenty eleven. The Cardinals, the Rangers should have won the World Series. They, they, it was absurd that the Rangers have still never won a World Series. They were one strike away twice. Uh, David Freeze is up with runners on first and second. They're they're one strike away, down two runs. They were down two runs Freeze, with their with their closer on the mound. With their closer on the mound. The David Freeze triples to right field on a ball that maybe should have been caught. Yes. Uh, probably should have been caught. <laughs> a better right fielder, Mookie Betts, makes that catch. I'm just saying. Uh, yes. But triples, score two runs, and then two innings later hits a solo homer to center to win it in the 11th inning. That's one of the greatest individual hitting performances in a World Series game, especially given the fact that they were down uh, to their last strike twice. Uh, it, it it really was absurd. I mean, it, it, it's when it's the moment that the Cardinals started to feel like, oh, they're it, they feel like the Yankees now. They're just they're gonna just do this all the time forever. And David Freeze, by the way, is like, I don't, he's not out of baseball, but it's not like he was David Ortiz, right? It's not no. like Joe Carter or Kirby Puckett. Like he was just a guy, and to do that in back to back games, back to back, almost back to back innings in the same game in an elimination game was was insane. Insane. And that whole game was insane. That whole, I mean, both teams should have won that game 25 times. And, yeah. and I mean, it was wild. And it is David Freeze. It was kind of like when Ed Sprague had that, had that game. Remember when he yeah. had the, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I, I mean, it was like that. David Freeze. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Freeze was the double homer. I mean, the double uh, hero, which is crazy. And, and uh, yeah, that, that game, that game, that whole that whole series was weird because it was like some of those games were really pretty poorly played, but yeah. but it was always exciting. It was always interesting, and you had good characters in in, in that thing. And uh, I really enjoyed that series. And and uh, yeah, the freeze the freeze thing was going to be uh, was going to be on. It's on my list. Um, with my fourth pick, I'm going to go and you know it's probably a steal at four. Uh, I'm going to go with the Joe Carter homer. Uh, I, I got to say that one. It doesn't have the same emotional oomph for me. Uh, I wasn't there, uh, and I wasn't even that into that series. Uh, you know, it was just not 
I didn't care that much about. I, I didn't think the Phillies team was very good or or very interesting. Uh, the Blue Jays, um, you know, whatever. I mean, they were they were fine, but but there was nothing. There was nothing that intriguing to me about that series. And I was watching that that game in a bar. I was in a bar uh, hanging out with a bunch of friends, and we were kind of watching it on a little screen. Um, so I wasn't really even paying much attention. But then in the ninth inning. When he came up, it's like, hey, the Phillies are about to win this game, um, and and so and he hit, and it's it is very very cool how he hits the home run, right? The that's that's the most fun kind of home run are those yanked home runs where you just like pull him into the into the left field, you know, or for a lefty putting him into the right field uh, stands, and the way he was so excited. And Joe Carter is a wonderful person um, who I've I've gotten to know a little bit because he lived in Kansas City. Uh, so everything about that was, was very cool and it's a walk-off Homer. I mean, we, we, we have not seen a true world series walk-off Homer. That's the only one, yeah. you know, I mean, we weren't, we weren't around for, for 1960 and Bill Mazeroski. So, so that's it. That's, that's the walk-off Homer we have. And, and, uh, and it's to a great guy. And so I, I like that. It's, it's, it's not as emotional for me as the first five or six that we both have picked, but, but it's still an amazing moment. Yeah, I, I it was on my list certainly because it's a game, it's a World Series winning walk off homer. It's a thing that every right. kid imagines doing when they're you know ten years old in their backyard. That series kind of stunk though. It, it they, stunk. Yeah, uh, I totally it, agree. It was a fifteen to fourteen game, and there was like a ten to two, a ten to three game, I think, or something like that. And it was like there was one. The game five was was great. Game five was Schilling uh, throwing a shutout, and it yes. was. It was a, a, a taut, exciting game. You know, they scored early, and then the and then tur- he just sort of like snuffed out Toronto. It was the first time Schilling on a big stage really kind of made a name for himself. Um, but the the whole series was just kind of sloppy, and there was you know a bunch of errors and stuff. I just remember like I wish that it had been uh, you know I wish that the series had been better leading to that point. But you're right. It's a walk-off game, World Series winning walk-off homer, and the touch 'em all Joe is a great line, and you know. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, it's fine. I could pick. Obviously, there's a bunch of other things to pick. I'm going to pick a, a complete wild card moment that has really that is not impactful in any way, shape, or form in the long run of the series in which it happened. But okay. my fifth favorite World Series moment is Barry Bonds against Troy Percival in 2002. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I do. Percival, so it's it's it that you know 2002 is obviously like the the white hot center of Barry Bonds doing superhuman Barry Bonds things. Troy Percival is one of the best closers in the game, who's super sort of aggro and macho and just like rears back and throws as hard as he possibly can. Yes. And they meet each other in the perfect situation because it's eleven to nine in the ninth inning. There are two outs and there's nobody on base. So Percival has a two-run lead. A guy who is a ultimate challenge fastball guy is facing the best hitter that the game has ever seen at the moment that he is the best hitter the game has ever seen. There's right. nobody on base. The the thing that the scenario you play on your head is so what? He hits a home run, so what? We still have the lead. And he decides he's going to throw Barry Bonds the hardest fastballs he can throw and try to strike him out. <laughs> it's just ultimate mono mono stuff. So Percival goes to a 1-0 count, I think. He throws the fastball as hard as he can. Unfortunately, it's belt high over the middle of the plate. And Barry Bonds hits a 7,000-foot home run to right. <laughs> and, the, and it was so fun. It was such a fun moment. It was so exciting. 
And first of all, there are many great things about it. Great thing number one is that Barry Bonds' home run trot took a week. Yes. He walked. He, first of all, he watched, he admired his own home run as he was wont to do for about 45 seconds and just stared at it and looked at it and contemplated the arc and the parabola of the ball. And he started going around. They showed like three replays of it. And when they cut back to the field, he was just rounding third base. (laughs) He took absolutely forever. But the very best thing about it is that the camera happened to drift over to the Angels dugout and focus on Tim Salmon. And Tim Salmon very clearly mouthed the words, that's the farthest ball I've ever seen. <laughs> and the, the timing of it, if you, wa- you can watch it on YouTube, the timing of it is so amazing. And he doesn't, look, he doesn't look like he's losing his mind or whatever. Obviously, it's still the ninth inning of a World Series game. Like, everybody's right. still in the game. But he just very flatly and plainly says out loud, ostensibly to no one, that's the farthest <laughs> ball I've ever seen hit. And that there was something that was so exciting about like the World Series and it was all California World Series and like that matchup was one that had been talked about of like if Percival has to face Bonds, what happens? And then he faced him in the perfect situation where where Percival was gonna do his thing and Bonds was gonna do his thing and Bonds won. And I I remember watching that and just having no rooting interest at all, not caring who won, and just enjoying it as like a moment in time in a in a World Series game. Yeah, that was it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. And it is, you know, and I I certainly don't want to at this late hour of of the podcast uh go off on a, on on one of my rants. Um but that is the exact reason why I hate the intentional walk. All right? That's that's what baseball is. Baseball is Troy Percival trying to get Barry Bonds out in that moment. Right. And it has clearly robbed us of many moments like Barry Bonds against Troy Burst. Exactly. That's right. It has. It really has. Because it's just as cool a moment in a different way if Percival strikes out Bonds. Let me go to my fifth pick because I could do this all day. Um, My fifth pick is I I waited as long as I could, Michael. I did. I waited as long as I could. Um, (laughs) You can have it. Yeah, yeah, I know. The ball goes through Buckner's legs. 86 World Series. It's not that play, okay? That play is sort of represented uh, everything about that inning. The improbability of that inning. So if you're a Red Sox fan, like, you're a Red Sox fan, right? Uh, yeah, I am, yeah. Okay, I thought you I were. Say, I forgot for a second that I was. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right, I am. Um, for a Red Sox fan, we, we can go through the angst. But for a Mets fan... That's that. Look, you're a Met fan. You're not thinking, oh, the, it's going to go wrong for the Red Sox because it always does. You're thinking this series is over. It's over. We just won 108 games. We're the greatest team in New York, like sports and forever. And we're about to lose to this Red Sox team. It's over. And the impossible series of events that has to happen and, 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 you know, and the growing understanding of what's happening. I mean, the, the crowd's sort of like, oh, you know, there's there's the Gary Carter single and the Ray Knight thing. And this, and the crowd's sort of like going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, oh, wait, it might matter a little bit. Oh, and then suddenly you're like, this matters. And the, the in many ways to me, the 
the Buckner play has become wildly overrated because the game was tied already, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, yes, it lost the game for him, and Buckner gets all the blame, but the game was already tied, and the Mets easily could have won an extra innings. So, I mean, that's to me that that's just part of the of the inning. I know you saw it from the worst possible angle, uh, but that whole inning is insane. No, it's uh, it's fine. I mean, I was ten years old and I cried myself to sleep, but I'm glad you picked it. It's totally. <laughs> oh, you picked the Glavin game with number two for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the it's you know it's really the Stanley Wild pitch slash Gedman yes. pass ball is the is the big play there. Right? Well, what is it by the way? What do you have it as? Wild pitch or pass ball? I am influenced by a Sports Illustrated article that I that I read whatever it is now, 25, 30 years ago, <laughs> where Stanley took it really hard. And, yes. and Stanley's wife, I believe, was interviewed for this article, and she says, I love Getty, I really do, but he blew it. And I, in my head, because I read that and I remember it, I remember that exact quote, I've always seen it as a past ball. But really, the, the larger problem is was the managing of that whole game, yes. that whole series, McNamara was pulling Buckner for a defensive replacement in the late innings of most of the games. Dave Stapleton would come in and play first because Buckner had two bad ankles. He didn't because he wanted Buckner to be on the field when they won. He continued not to do it as the inning wore on and things got more and more dicey. If he had, I think probably Stapleton makes that play. Probably the game goes to extra innings. Who knows? All of the details of that are so awful. It's like, you know, they were already engraving the MVP trophy with Marty Barrett's or Bruce Hurst's name on it, I think. Marty Barrett had set a record for most hits in a World Series. Every, I mean, it was all of the demons were being erased. You know, the reason I don't hate it anymore is because of the catharsis of the last 15 years, obviously, or 12 yeah. years. And because in a certain way, now that it's ended, all of the pain and agony was worth it in the same way that it... it will maybe have been worth it for the Cubs or Indians fans if they, you know, when they win this year. So it doesn't bother me anymore. It's, it's, it's a, it was an awful wound for a long time that has now completely healed. So, and, and obviously in terms of iconic World Series moments, it's going to be played in every montage of every World Series <laughs> history thing that's ever made for the rest of time. So I get, I get the pick. Yeah, well, you got to do it. You got to do it. We kept this thing under an hour uh, despite... Good despite spending four forty-five minutes on uh, the Dollar Shave Club. So, now, what was uh, your, Michael? Just if what you well, one more pick. I, if I had one more pick, I was going with Bumgarner in 2014. That was going to be my last pick. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was going to go with the pocket, Homer. Yeah. Um, you know, again, iconic. And, you know, although I, it doesn't have a, a special meaning for me, uh, probably what I would pick, honestly, even though it was there was nothing, it would be the, the, um, the uh, uh, Eric Hosmer play in yeah. in the uh, Royals Mets series just because it was so I mean watching it you know in in person it was it was like what what is going on and then you see him score and then there's this feeling hey the Royals Kansas City Royals are going to win the World Series I mean it was that <laughs> yeah. was that was really that was sort of an eye-opening and that was a great celebration uh having spent all those years uh, in Kansas City and and having such you know strong feelings for Dayton Moore and all those guys so that was like a personal uh triumph uh but uh but I think um the, the Kirby pocket homer was pretty cool too yeah well that whole game the 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 he hit a triple he robbed Ran, Ron Gant of a home run at the wall or a yes. double at the wall he hit the homer in the 11th like that was a that was an amazing game for him 
Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for doing this. Thanks for having me.